Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out Toronto Today and the Tuesday podcast for December 14th. We talk out of the gate, and we did it in our 8 o'clock hour, about public health and its role and the balance that we're all seeking. Health matters. It means a ton to all of us. Of course it does. But what else matters? Well, parenting matters. Education matters. Um, yeah, liberty and freedom, though it gets co-opted for some ridiculous things sometimes. Those are things that, you know, you'd rather have liberty and have freedom than not have it. We haven't grown up in a place where you don't have liberty and freedom. Some of that's being altered, admittedly co-opted by bad actors politically, but it matters also. We'll get to a lot of that uh, on the show today. Jeffrey York uh, joins us, Globe and Mail, Africa correspondent from South Africa. What's happening on the ground with restrictions Lack of hospitalizations versus cases. Is Delta getting flattened out by Omicron? And Anthony Fury from the Toronto Sun. Much coming up on the podcast, Toronto Today, starts now. Let me start here, and I want to take phone calls on what you think the role of public health should be and what the role of public health has been. And I want to delineate what public health is. It's not just chief medical officers of health. You've heard us reference top doctors. I don't want to, yeah, I'm in too good a mood to bristle about that term. Sometimes I do. Today, I won't. Okay, yes, um, the top doctor in Toronto is Dr. Eileen Davila, and we hope she's doing well with her own individual fight right now. Absolutely. Um, the top doctor in Ontario is Dr. Kieran Moore, who you'll hear at 3 o'clock today right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Our guest, my guess, uh, an expansion of the booster announcement from Friday. And that's good news. That's really good news. That's a that's a win as opposed to a loss. And uh, the top doctor in Canada is Dr. Teresa Tam. So we know this. My number is 416-870-6400. 416-870-6400. And I want you to tell me whether we have oversold, over-delivered, over-emphasized what public health is. And I ask this because... I didn't think we did at the beginning because of, because of the unknown. And we still have a little bit of an unknown happening with Omicron. Give you that 100%. We need more real world data on this. Now, I asked this 416-870-6400. What have these doctors done? Do you listen to them? Do you pay attention to them? How, how would you rate them? I'm worried that there's going to be an avalanche of criticism but I can defend some of what they do, and I'll lay that out in a minute. But I want to hear from you as well, 416-870-6400. Tone matters, right? Context matters. Nuance matters. We had that discussion with um, Isaac Bogosh yesterday uh, on the show. Let me bring up an example of where we lack the right tone. And and I, I will bring it up in a second. But yeah, the latest this morning is, well, what we see in South Africa. We had Jeffrey York on at 630 documenting that with a 25% vaccination rate, um, there has not been an increase in hospitalizations. Admissions and deaths are down for Gotang province. We've talked about that. That's where Omicron was discovered. And again, don't blame the South Africans uh, and the South African population or the lack of vaccination for Omicron. It looks like Omicron was brought there as opposed to, in essence, created there. But there's signs of decoupling. Some of that's immunity from prior infections, and they may have more of that than us because they're not as highly insulated with vaccination. We may not have as much natural immunity as we think, but I would put it this way, Delta and the lack of punishment Delta gave us, which, again, this show told you would happen, as in would not happen in August, September, October and all of November. 
when there was a lot of screaming about stadiums opening and arenas opening and restaurants opening. And we kept our cases really low. By the way, schools opened here and cases went down, not up. I don't know what that tells you. Well, I do, but many people don't want to admit it. And that gets to what public health is supposed to do. Some of it's bedside manner. You've ever you've, you've heard it before. Well, my doctor, we, we changed doctors. We didn't like the bedside manner. I, I can tell you when we first moved to Toronto, our family, we had a doctor kind of recommended to us and we had little kids, right? We had an infant and a two and a half year old. So who the doctor is really, really matters. It always does, but especially at that age. And we just didn't, you know, didn't love everything about the tone. And we found a new one and she's brilliant. So the bedside manner matters. When I see this message, um, Rick Westhead, by the way, from TSN, um, is uh, I consider myself friendly with him. And he was on the show. Brilliant journalist, right, from TSN, did the Kyle Beach interview. And um, he talked to Dr. Andrew Morris, who I've interviewed. Seems like a good guy um, about pro sports events and Omicron. Let me read you Rick's tweet. And this is I, I, Rick. Rick is reporting here. That's he's a reporter, not pinning this on Rick. I interviewed Dr. Andrew Morris, uh, blah, blah, blah. He says Omicron cases doubling in Ontario every two to three days. Estimates 10,000 daily cases by December 31st. Predicts Ontario government will soon have to close NHL, NBA games to fans. Quote, government has no choice. And I ask, what's the win in the quote there? What are we trying to accomplish with the quote? Do we want to prevent tragedies? Do we want to prevent... um, Something, a bad outcome, bad occurrences. Like if you're right, if Dr. Morris is right, and I, I will point out, it's only fair to point out, as, as brilliant as he is, no one's going to line him up next to me and go, gee, I'm not sure who's smarter. Dr. Morris probably is when it comes to what he does. But I communicate for a living. And I've done it quite a while. And I don't hesitate to say it's one of my best qualities is speaking communicating clearly. Um, yeah, I can ask a long question once in a while, but this is what I was, what I was supposed to do. This is what I was, this is what I wanted to do from age five. And this is what I was meant to do. Um, there's doctors that were meant to do what they do as well and be brilliant with their studies. But the tone in that bedside manner, where's the win in saying we're going to close NHL and NBA games to fans. Where's the win in a Dr. Colin Furness on the weekend Basically calling you an a-hole if you go out to a restaurant. That's what he did. He woke up Saturday morning, 10 a.m. People have had a long week. You know, they, they might be looking to him for advice. Again, I've interviewed both these men before, and I can't do it again. I can't do it. They may not interview with me because guess what? And some of these um, uh, how advances have been rejected, I think, because I'm going to ask you tough questions. I'm, I am now. Okay? And I've been like that for a few months. So we've shaved down the list of people, you heard Dr. Chakrabarty on today. You heard Dr. Bogosh on yesterday. Um, you're hearing a shave down of the list because everyone else gets held accountable. Everyone else makes themselves accountable when they're wrong. Where's the win in predicting chaos and disaster for the economy and for families and for businesses to get? If you're right, congratulations, I guess. And if you're wrong, you've terrorized people with your words for 19 days. Congratulations there also. I don't know, because I don't know where we're headed. I know this. Um, if there's no significant increase in hospitalizations, we'll have overreacted. But there will be no consideration for everything that got hammered. Kids' education, our own mental health. Mental health. Is that not health? 
And this brings me, brings me to talk about where we're at. Have we prioritized health over other values? I would make the case that we have. Like risk communication is one thing. What, what's a public health official's job? I'm going to get to the phones in just a sec. What's their, what, what, their prior, they're going to prioritize health. They're a public health official. Health is their priority. You can make the argument that COVID has been prioritized over other aspects of health. But what are other values that you and I have? Think about the values that we have. What's what? Health is one. Health, some people say health is everything. Well, your quality of life matters also. And that helps create mental and physical health. Put it this way. I can't run outside with my knee. First world problems. I get it. So I want to go to the gym like I did yesterday and run. And I want older people. I, my God, I just about broke down into tears. I'm a crier. I admit it. These two uh, older men were talking in the gym locker room yesterday. And the one guy's like, his wife's not too good. And she's got other health issues. And, uh, and the isolation is, as he said, slowly killing her. That's what he said. He doesn't want to shut down. And those are the people we kind of did shut down for. So quality of life matters. How about psychological well-being? How about economics? How about education? That matters a lot to me. Probably matters a lot to you as a parent. A lot of teachers listen. It matters to you also. Liberty. Now, liberty gets co-opted by people on the far right. You're the people banging pots and pans outside Christine Elliott's house uh, last night, the health minister, deputy premier. Those people are animals. They are. They're the worst of us. And they'll shout about liberty. But liberty does matter. Liberties and freedoms do matter. It just gets co-opted. So if public health focuses exclusively on health and they're myopic about COVID when it comes to health, um, that's not great. That's not great. And we're not seeing them own prior mistakes. And politicians are. And we are in the media. I'm going to tell you when I get it wrong. I do constantly. But we just we let people keep stepping into the plate and letting them amplify, amplify thoughts and messages. Dr. Morris, again, seems like a nice guy. He's a basketball coach. Now, did he coach his daughter on the weekend in indoor basketball, but he wants us all to hide now? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Um, but I do know this. There has to be, has to be some balance here. Um, he was a big COVID zero guy, like deep into vaccinations. Think of that what you will. Were we going to crush the virus with COVID zero? What would that have done to people's mental health? Edward, you're on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hi, Edward. You go ahead. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Happy to. Yes. Well, you know, I've been I've been working on a uh, with a number of volunteers since, believe it or not, March of 2020 on a system called Safe Space First, which can be seen at safespacefirst.com. And it was an entire universal system set up for you know, for uh, safe space management because there was no way to change an entire life, quality of life, and have everybody adopt it because we threw a few uh, floor markers on the floor and gave a instructions on how to clean things properly. So at the end of the day, we, uh, we've been working on a plan to really uh, how to be able to safely manage space. Okay, I don't know where we're going here. We're talking about public health well, and, pri- and then prioritizing health really, over other it, values. Well, it's a simple thing. I mean, government really is in a reactive mode. They can't build a model to do this. They're trying to mitigate health, and everything's become management by popularity of uh, what do we want first. We need jerk everything. It's yeah. been a flip-flop management the entire time. Health has been overriding everything, including business. 
making decisions for people they don't entirely understand the space explains the inconsistencies of why we've been struggling with all this stuff. I, I hear that. I hear that. I got to keep it moving. I got to keep it moving here. But I understand what you're saying. And yeah, lockdowns have been fundamentally about health versus economics and psychological well-being. What are we prioritizing? Well, a lot of people now are saying, don't touch my economics. Don't touch my psychological well-being. I'm good with my health. Whether I'm fully vaccinated, whether I'm boosted, whatever, don't touch my kids' health, mental or otherwise. There's that also. Don, you're on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Don, you go ahead. Hey, good morning, Greg. Morning. Uh, you know what? My uh, a couple of problems. I, I, it seems as though public health, the the talking heads, anyways, it might be great doctors. You kind of touched on it there in your rant a few minutes ago. But they might be great doctors, great people, but they're not great presenters. They're not great speakers. So, you know, after. 20 seconds of blah, 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 I'm out. I tune out, I turn off, I go somewhere else. And and that's a shame because I'm sure the information they're trying to share is valuable. Well, here's what I'd say. Let, let me run this past you. I, I, think, they, I think many of them are um, great speakers, but I also feel there is a fundamental, um, you know, responsibility to be level-headed. I think... If George Bush steps up to a microphone after September 12th and says, hey, this could happen again. I don't know if this is going to happen again. I'm panicked right now. I've never been more afraid in my life. That's awful messaging. He might feel that, but he can't say it. And that's my problem. You might think the worst is coming. There's a way to couch it and a way to still be responsible about the message you spread. And I worry we're failing a little bit at that. And I can't put those people on the radio. I can't do it. No, fair enough. And, and, when they talk about the modeling, they go right to the one end of worst case scenario. And they say, you yeah. know, there's going to be 20,000 cases a day. Well, yeah, if you factor in every conceivable negative and everybody's out there licking telephone poles and, you know, on and on and on, conceivably we might get there. But we're not doing we're, that. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. I want to get one more in quickly because um, we got a shorter segment coming up here and then David Aiken's on. But that's that's where I'm at. Um, I, you know, I don't want to spread false hope, but there has to be some hope. There's data that's valid and really encouraging from South Africa. There's data that's concerning. Give them both. Give them both equal time. There has to be. And you, by the way, for any public health measure to be justifiable now after 21 months, any public health measure, there has to be hope and clear endpoints. OK, if you're in a position of authority and you're spreading terror and that's what it is. I'm sorry. That's what Dr. Morris's comments are. You might be intending good. It doesn't. It doesn't come out that way. It doesn't end that well. Jeff, go ahead. You're on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I only got a minute here, Jeff, but I want to get you on. Yeah, yeah, brilliance. You know what I mean? It was the problem is the government has put the medical community in charge, and they can't let go of it like that dog with that bone. And the fear factor and the terror is is just a mental health crisis now okay it's not it's more transmissible it's not more deadly we're double vaxxed we're triple vaxxed we're quadruple vaxxed there'll be other variants icus aren't going up cases are but people aren't dying and the deaths are are stagnant uh, enough with the terror and the fear pull back the government pull it back from the medical community because there's just terror and fear well this will hmm. never end this will never end. And the, the, the thing is, the small business, oh, don't go into the shoe store because then that's going to yeah. be closing schools. Yeah. Have these idiots been to restaurants lately? There's nobody in any restaurants. 
There's no one in restaurants. No one's going to restaurants. So stop going on with the restaurants and stop going I, on with the small business and closing schools. Enough is enough. Here's what I'd say to, to wrap up. And again, I'm, uh, I'm trying to keep my blood pressure low and I'm trying to be pre- pretty level-headed about this. If I told you, if you wanted restrictions and you wanted a woman called the show yesterday, she was lovely, but she said, let's, let's send kids home right now for the week before Christmas. Well, is that going to instill confidence or panic? which one of those two? You know the answer. It's the latter, not the former. And if I said to you, there's another Omicron coming next June, and there's another Omicron, now who's spreading fear, right? But would you would you shut anything down now if you knew there were three more Omicrons? Especially if they were less, less, we don't know yet. I don't know. I would never, ever, ever lead you astray and make that statement that anybody knows that this is less virulent and this is not going to flatten unvaccinated people. Uh, let's bring on uh, uh, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. We're always happy when uh, he makes time for us. And uh, and we moved you. We fle- This is like the uh, NFL flexing you into a, um, well, I don't want to say a better time slot, but let- we had you at 6.30 before and then we double booked, and that's my fault. So thank you for making the time for our listeners now. Great to be here. I'm already in my, like, a couple of hours into my morning here, and my kids are up at like 4.30, 5 o'clock. And you, um, you've told me this before, so I'm not, I'm not telling tales out of school. You're expecting uh, with the misses, clearly? Absolutely. Uh, 27th of December. So look, really looking forward to it. It's been a couple of crazy weeks, though. <laughs> I can't. Yes. And uh, do you know uh, what it is? I don't know why we still use that phrase, but do you know what it is? How it is? No, no. All that? We a, a surprise with the first two. We're doing a surprise with the third as well. The first two were girls. So let's see. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to be happy, whatever it is. Oh, you say that. Listen, your your wife's asleep. You want a son. And you want it better. Like, you're going to keep, keep uh, you know, rolling on this. Uh, pro- I, I asked my wife. We had two boys. And then I said, we, were, we literally had, like, almost like salt talks to decide whether we wanted a third or not. And I said, what if we have, uh, what, what if I told you it was a third boy? And she's like, not in a million trillion years do I want that. So I'm like, we then, that basically made the decision to us, for us, uh, not to press onward. Is that a phrase? <laughs> when it comes to uh, trying? I don't know. Um, the data in South Africa, look, we're two and a half weeks into this, uh, and you and I have you know, talked before uh, about this. There's, there's so many things that aren't surprising. This is going to become the dominant variant. It's not if, it's a question of when. We spoke to uh, Jeffrey York from the Global Mail in South Africa. Um, Omicron has flattened Delta out. That's, I suppose, a good thing. What's not a good thing, and, and the most und- indisputable thing about Omicron, uh, Dr. Chakrabarty, just seems to be its transmissibility. Uh, it just, it, there's no one that debates that aspect of it. No, yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, and, you, you know, to use a, a, a hockey analogy here, if uh, Delta, which seemed something like the Incredible Hulk, uh, it looks like Omicron kind of ragdolling um, the Incredible Hulk here by just the way it has displaced it in so many places. But that said, you know, we have been getting these signals uh, uh, that uh, there may be signs that it's milder in that people who are getting it are not as likely to get hospitalized, which is a huge thing, if true. And some data just came out from South Africa this morning is showing that this trend is holding. Of course, it's still early days, and I'm not saying that we have to, uh, you know, we can bank on that just yet. But that's what the initial data is showing. And for me, that's encouraging. What are you most uncertain about? What's something that would, you know, I, it might stress our listeners. It might put them at ease. I, I, I don't want to do both unnecessarily. There's been too much of that lately. But what is data that you're, that's the most uncertain thing to you that you say, calm, calm, your, calm your horses. We, get, we need more time and we need more data to fully understand the level of concern here. 
I think for me, the main thing, and a lot of us are looking at this, is what is the severity of this thing in terms of, uh, number one, you know, the hospitalizations, and number two is the, the, the sheer number of cases. So let's say if something is relatively mild to the point that you're not getting hospitalized as much, but there are so many cases that even that small proportion ends up being a lot of hospitalizations. That is what uh, I think uh, uh, concerns us. And the trend and seeing how that plays out, especially in uh, Ontario and Canada, is going to be really applicable for us. So that's really where the wild card is for me. It's very encouraging to see many places that are uh, seeing a significant drop in the relative amount of hospitalizations. So I'm encouraged. But, uh, you know, this is going to be uh, our story in a couple of weeks. And one last thing I will mention is case counts, you know, they're, they're so out of context now. They don't make as much sense. But when that number gets big, it makes everybody nervous. And then you start to see uh, twitchy policy decisions. So I really hope that people get to the point that, look, case counts are nowhere near as illustrative at this point as hospitalizations are. I brought this up with Dr. Bogosh yesterday, uh, is that we have to we have to reframe conversations about case counts. Here's what we have to do for our education system. If, if we all want to stand up and yell and scream, schools are the last thing that should close, we need an instant conversation to reframe this with boards, union leaders, um, you know, health officials, and yeah, politicians. Because if we're going to close, every, my kids' high school closed last week with three positive cases, two in fully vaccinated kids, um, neither of which was mine, and another unvaccinated kid, but no symptoms. This is this is the word on the ground here in, uh, in Mighty Ajax. But if, Dr. Chakrabarty, if we're going to close schools with three Omicron cases, yeah, every school is going to be closed by the middle of January. That's what's going to, we have to reframe this. I completely agree, and I think that we have to reframe this not just in schools, but in society at large. We're at a point now where we're going to be seeing cases. We know this is going to be an endemic virus. And if we start to isolate or close workplaces or uh, isolate uh, workers every single time we find a case, especially if they're vaccinated and uh, asymptomatic, you're going to basically deplete the, the workforce as we start to get to uh, the, the time where you see the peak of respiratory viruses, generally in you know, December, January, before you, you get, get your second peak a bit later. But the point is we really have to change our perspective that, look, if you get a bunch of cases in younger people uh, and you also have the highest risk people who are vaccinated, the chance of this leading to hospitalization is much less. We have to accept this and realize that the best of both worlds is to look at this, look at who is going to get severe disease and make sure we don't deplete the workforce by just isolating everybody. Well, you made the point and uh, I, I thank you for it. And everybody else that works in healthcare should thank you for it. And you're not the only one that that's what needs to be redefined. If we're talking a burned out, uh, exhausted, I hear from doctors all the time that say I'm working six days a week, 14 hours a day, doctors, nurses, um, support staff. If we don't reframe that and people have to isolate, we're, it doesn't matter how many beds there are. It doesn't matter if hospitalizations stay static. We won't have the staff. It, it's exactly right. And, you know, even before Omicron came about, the CDC had a protocol, and we actually use the protocol at many hospitals here as well, is what to do with staff uh, when you're uh, facing a depleted workforce. So the whole idea of uh, 14 days of isolation with a high-risk contact or 10 days of isolation if you have COVID, these things are still mainly based on uh, practices we were using back when uh, we saw the, the virus in China. And we really need to update this because the incubation period is much shorter and people are infectious for a much shorter period of time. We know this now. And I think that this needs to be employed broadly 
Uh, and it needs to be done mm-hmm. fast because we are in the middle of the, the winter season right now. I need to hit your uh, emotionality here. Um, what, how fearful are you that we've just got this wave of fear and it spreads and spreads and spreads? Um, and while we were having, I think, a wave of positivity about where we were and what we were doing in September and October, doctors like you, people like me said in September and October, don't panic about Delta. We're really well vaccinated. We're well insulated. We know what to do and what not to do. And that bore out for three and a half months, despite a lot of doom and gloom. Are you worried now that this is spreading too fast, this level of fear and restrictions will come with fear? That's exactly I'm less worried about the virus as I am worried about the response to the virus. We see now that a lot of these large scale restrictive policies can have unintended consequences where the risk is often downloaded onto marginalized individuals, essential workers, etc., I think the one thing that is sad for me is that while you know, restrictive policies have been used in the past sparingly with uh, uh, different uh, um, infectious disease threats, the idea that it's used first line is something that we saw obviously in uh, April 2020, sorry, March 2020, but the public now almost puts these two together. If numbers go up, it means restrictions, and that's not a regular first line policy. I really hope that we make the right decision, keep schools open, don't restrict things, and uh, make sure we focus on hospitalization. I'm going to keep begging you for your time uh, for our listeners because you're you're an important voice of reason here. Uh, and I think I think as time goes on, it'll bear that out. Thank you for the time, and uh, we'll chat soon. Here, great talk to you. Okay, want to get uh, Anthony Fury from the uh, Toronto Sun in and play the clip that generated a lot of feedback uh, on our text line in the 6 o'clock hour. Uh, But he's up. I want him to be able to hear it. Dominic Robbs, the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, yesterday it was announced someone uh, is deceased while testing positive for the Omicron virus. But... But he was asked, Dominic Robb was, if this is this because of Omicron or is is this the main factor in the deceased person's demise or is this a positive test? And there are other factors. This is I, I'm sorry. It's a problematic answer. Twenty one months in. it might have been one month in. Here's what he says. I think that's been a challenge uh, to, pro- to 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 demonstrate the uh, the the if you like the primary cause of death mm. um, as opposed to uh, people that die of and a lot of the people that have suffered from coronavirus and I'm sure it's the same with Omicron but, being elderly people yeah. with multiple conditions I think you're, if you listen to the practitioners it is often very difficult okay. on a bir- on a on a death certificate to say definitively what someone died of if they have multiple conditions but we know that um, my understanding is one person with Omicron has died. Um, uh, in hospital. I don't get it. This is not 1921. It is not difficult. We have phenomenal technology and phenomenal people that work in medicine that will tell you what your loved one passes away of. If they're 18 or if they're 98, they'll tell you uh, what it is. Anthony Fury joins me now. Like, that's my perspective. That's like that. You need we need information and we need it ASAP. So if they have it, If we had this happen in Toronto, we can't be having this uh, because it alarms people and people react. It affects our mental health. Like, let's get practical, pragmatic data about this. Yeah, good morning, Greg. And I'm glad we're finally talking about this more openly. Over a year ago, I wrote a piece on comorbidity data. The data was only publicly available for Alberta, not other provinces. What it found at the time was that 75% of the people who had died of COVID-19 in Alberta had been struggling with three or more underlying health conditions 
at the same time. And when I wrote this piece, it caused a bit of an odd scandal in that uh, Health Minister Patty Hadju, she was the Health Minister then, she denounced my writing in the House of Commons. She said it's dangerous fake news. This just came from Alberta Health Services data, nothing wrong with it. Uh, There was a bit of a hit piece on me in CBC. The CBC ombudsman later wrote a piece saying the story about me that they did was was uh, very flawed and that my piece was entirely accurate. I didn't need the CBC ombudsman to tell me that, but it was interesting that that was the result of all of that. And I just thought, look, guys, we're just talking about data here. And I've been a big believer that more nuanced and contextualized data can just help us all move forward with all of this. And it's good to see the deputy prime minister of the UK acknowledge those nuances that are happening. We need to just talk about this stuff more. Statistics Canada has uh, written a report that basically says that what happened in Alberta is constant for all of Canada. And uh, that that's still what's going on right now. We've had I've had so many um, doctors on and, and Dr. Isaac Bogus, who I know you you interviewed um, and chatted with for your your you know, your comment piece in The Sun yesterday. We had him on the show yesterday and he and I talked on World AIDS Day and we agreed that one of the big things that was excellent about that era was sharing data about that. You remember, we're about the same age. We remember, um, how would I put it, getting active and being really worried about HIV, AIDS. Is this going to explode into the heterosexual population? Is it going to travel around? Is it going to be everywhere? And and they put out great data to document that no, and it, it stayed within two main groups. Sadly, two main groups, the, um, you know, the homosexual male population and intravenous drug users. And so we were able to pivot our attention and help those groups because we should. That's where funding, education, safe spaces, we did all that stuff for those groups. And we just we've seemed to lost. We've lost that perspective about covid and we've just made this an an every man, every woman disease. Yeah. And it's the phrase focused protection. A lot of people for a long time have been saying that's where we need to head with covid. And for some bizarre reason, these medical experts who who some of them uh, I have interviewed people who were on the front lines of the AIDS crisis and they've done similar parallels as you've just made right now, and they say, let's really micro-target the people who are at serious risk of having bad outcomes of this virus and help them make uh, all the smart decisions they need to make in our lives. Because really, if we're going to spend our time fighting about whether kids do or do not need to wear masks in playgrounds, ridiculous arguments like that, that's actually bandwidth that could better be spent on uh, actually assisting people who are at risk of COVID-19. That's been what's so frustrating here. A lot of people who who really need to be talked off the ledge in terms of the fact they don't need to be freaking out about it. Could we take all that energy and use it into something productive? Because there there are a lot of people who are at risk of this virus, and, and let's help them identify themselves and, and, and let's help everybody have good outcomes. And this is all I hear, to be honest, from talking to anybody in their 70s and 80s. They're so thankful. They're grateful that we did what we did. We laid everything on the line for them, our existences, our businesses, our socialization, all that stuff. And we thought we can do it for a little bit of time. And all I hear from 70 and 80 year olds now, um, whether it's on my street, whether it's my parents, whether it's whomever, that we've got a moral obligation to kind of free up our kids. And I know, I know we've got to, we've got to be wary of what Omicron could be or could not be, but the idea that they'll be even less free than they were six months ago to be kids, teenagers, college students. um, I don't sleep well at night thinking about it. Yeah. I think it's quite frankly, an absolute scandal, a total joke that Ajax high school has entirely shut down 
uh, headed to virtual learning for the entire month because of three identified cases. I just think that's the triumph of fear and ignorance right now. It's just awful to see that happen, particularly with that age cohort having a very high vaccination rate. And, you know, I've been an advocate of doing what they do in BC, where they don't even send an entire classroom home. Maybe if they say, okay, one kid tests positive, right, they have a, a best buddy who they're always kind of, you know, huddled in a corner with, maybe get that kid tested or whatnot. Otherwise, let them live their lives. You look in the U.S., whether it's a very Republican, very Democrat, whatever part of the country, I mean, they're not doing the things to their kids that we are doing here in Ontario. I mean, we are really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of kids' policies in this province. It's shameful. I'll come back to Canada, but since you mentioned the states, you and I are probably keen uh, political observers of everything uh, that goes on down there. The um, the midterm elections are going to be next November. Uh-huh. Here, here's my prediction as someone that was, to be honest, desperate with relatives, friends, everybody to have Donald Trump removed from the scene. The mm. COVID policies, the COVID policies of many Democratic governors, Democratic senators, Democratic mayors. The Dems are going to get slaughtered in November, slaughtered because there's one party right now. It's amazing what you'll forget. It's amazing what people will let go when when your own family is messed with. It's amazing what you'll stand up for. And there are states and districts and regions that are, you know, obviously taking care of the most vulnerable people. Obviously, there's still some restrictions in place and and mask mandates. Of course, there are. But there's kids that are playing sports and being outside without masks. And you see videos circulating of kids eating, you know, sitting outdoors in like four degree weather on like like basically pails and they're eating lunch and they have to keep their head down and their mask on when they're not chewing. Um, they're going to they're going to make people pay who decided to do this at the at the at the ballot at the ballot box. They are. No, totally. And it's been very interesting. I, I know I said that uh, they're doing much better policies with kids in the U.S. And it's largely true. But there's some jurisdictions, a few where it's not true. And a lot of the people leading the charge against unmasked are kids. These are not, you know, a stereotype of some old white man Republican. I mean, you have uh, people on the front lines of that fight are, are, are younger moms who are leaning Democrat, uh, people from all walks of life. The new incoming mayor of, uh, of New York, Eric Adams, uh, he's very much a left-wing individual Democrat. He was leading the charge against Bill, uh, Bill de Blasio's school closures uh, last year. But there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on in the U.S. I will say, Greg, one of the interesting things about whether or not uh, a sort of Trump attitude kind of returns during the midterms is, is <laughs> for whatever reason, all of those things that Trump was hawkish about, uh, border volumes, troubles with China, uh, too much wokeism, these are things that are actually coming back with a vengeance. So things are almost kind of trending in his direction just based on the passage of time, which I know has a lot of sort of moderate Democrat strategists kind of nervous. Yeah, I mean, the way I would put it is if you lose if you lose people that are centrist, if you lose people that even lean way left, but they are adamant against restrictions on their kids, um, then you then you've right. lost everything. It's not unlike Republicans that felt abandoned when it became the party of Trump. But they will honestly, yeah. they only get one vote and they're and they're going to look in their own household and go, I got one vote to change the next two years, four years uh, for for my teenager or my college student or my six year old. And they're going to vote accordingly. They'll always vote for family and, and people better. To recognize that you know and bring it here to ontario and talking about an election in june i mean i think stephen del duca and andrew horvath have so much become just the COVID opposition that's all they go on about and they've decided their strategy is not to say you know why, why doesn't andrew horvath say bc ndp province 
best managed COVID in the country. Be like the NDP. Andrew Horvath says, I'm going to look out for your kids. I'm going to unmask your kids. Yeah. I think she'd be considered a hero. Instead, her and Stephen Del Duca, there's no nutty lockdown idea uh, that they've heard that they don't like. I mean, they push more aggressively uh, than the most aggressive COVID zero people out there and some of the ideas they have. And I think if they just moderated their views, uh, that would be a lot better uh, for them. Well, I think Del, du- Del Duca took, sorry to interrupt, Del Duca took a big win in the summer and said, let's mandate the vaccine for education workers. Let's mm. let's make sure that no one's teaching your kid that isn't vaccinated. And he took that and there was a little bit of a, a double down. And and let's face it too, John Tory and Eileen DeVillo were front and center. Let's vaccinate right. five to 11 year olds. As in, if if you deem that your six-year-old, your healthy six-year-old, you don't want them to get vaccinated, they don't go to school. Who gets punished? The six-year-old does every day, Monday to Friday, seven days a week. That's the only person that's getting punished is the six-year-old because their parents chose not to vaccinate them. You, there's no, and they're awfully quiet about it now. I haven't heard a word about a, ban, a mandate for five to eleven. It's weird how that's happened. Absolutely. And Andrea Horvath, she initially said she wanted to do that as well. And they've kind of ghosted away from it. We get these media maelstroms where we obsess over one issue for two weeks. We need paid sick days right now. We need rapid tests for everybody. It's kind of the uh, the COVID magic solution du jour that somehow doesn't magically solve things, but we pretend it will when we're caught up in that maelstrom there. And that that never took on for mandating mm-hmm. five to 11, because I, I think people acknowledge it's different. It comes with more nuances. To your point, it comes from, you know, more just sort of respect for family situations. And, uh, you know, I think Horvath would have jumped on that train, but she just sees that train ain't leaving the station. Yeah. And there's no real world data. We had plenty of adult real world data to, uh, to, oh, yeah. to, you know, to mandate it even for ourselves, for the hesitant adults out there. I got to leave it there. His latest column in the Toronto Sun. Thanks for the time, Anthony. Thank you, sir. Okay, bit of a health checkup today uh, from our federal government. The Trudeau Liberals will uh, update federal finances, the outlook for the economy. And, of course, uh, last week it was so much uh, in the news cycle, federally too, uh, but so much under the radar about benefits, taxes, economic growth. Uh, No one better to check in with than our own uh, David Aiken. And this is a big one today, isn't it? Uh, The fall fiscal update, David. We'll have uh, Deputy PM Finance Minister Christian Freeland give us basically a fiscal snapshot around 4 o'clock Eastern what do Canadians look for today? Uh, what are we uh, parsing through the numbers when they get revealed? Well, I think from the government standpoint, the narrative you're going to hear from Minister Freeland is one of an improving, that's right, an improving federal fiscal picture. Uh, revenues for the year so far are up. And when I say improving, improving versus the budget of April of, uh, of the spring. So revenues are up expenses are not, uh, we're not racking up the spending that we thought we would. Why is that? It's because our economy actually is doing better than expected. Uh, And the best evidence of this is the latest jobs report we saw last month um, was, uh, you know, off the charts in terms of uh, adding new jobs. Uh, Overall, since pre-pandemic, we've regained all the job losses and then some, more than a million jobs. Record high employment levels, for example, among women, 25 to 55, that's that's a good sign. Record low unemployment next door in Quebec. So all those numbers, and I realize there's still sectors of the economy still struggling a bit, but the big picture is all these people going back to work, that means they're paying taxes, and that's the revenue increasing. And and also means the government is not spending as much money on those pandemic recovery benefit supports, enhanced EI and so on. And that means lower expenses. Now, that's the government's narrative. 
the, 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 the other thing is, though, too, even with all that, we are still with eye-watering red ink. The deficit <laughs> is still a monster. Uh, just for the first six months alone, we have the data for the first six months of the fiscal year. We're, all, we're already $70 billion in the hole. That's just after the first six months. That's from April to September. Uh, so we're going to get some updates on how big that hole is going to be at the end of the fiscal year. And then I think what you're, where, where you'll see the discussion happen between opposition politicians and the government is the government had earlier telegraphed that once we start hitting some of these job numbers, that would be the signal to start withdrawing some of this extraordinary spending. And so Minister Freeland presumably is going to want to explain, well, what is the path to withdraw some of this extraordinary spending? Because the big economic issue in the country right now is inflation. And that's what the conservatives have been hammering about. Cost of gas, groceries, everything is up, up, up. And people can argue that when governments are putting more money into the economy, that is by definition inflationary. So you will hear some arguments about Who's to blame for inflation? The government says, mm -hmm. hey, this is a global phenomenon. It's not anything Canada can do something about. And the opposition will say, nonsense. You guys are spending too much money. It's time to start pulling that support back. David Aiken is joining us. This announcement should come around 4 o'clock today. Um, the federal government also announced a pretty substantial financial commitment. Again, everything going on yesterday, right? Anita Anand, uh, you know, so much stuff. It, it kind of got lost a little bit in the shuffle, but I wanted you to speak to it. $40 billion that it'll pay over the years to First Nations kids and their families um, to improve the health and welfare system for those kids. Um, that in itself is something. Are we expecting any other major financial commitments today? I, I don't think so, but that one, you're, you're right to highlight, it is really important, and it's something I think a lot of Canadians are now paying more and more attention to, is the health and welfare systems on our reserves for First Nations kids. Um, the government has been in court uh, fighting some rulings that are telling it to pay compensation to kids who were pulled out of their families, placed in foster care to much harm. This happened over the last 30 or 40 years. This is not residential schools. This is crises happening right now today um, with First Nations kids. So the government is still working through some of these court settlements, still negotiating how much compensation will be paid to individual kids and their families. But what it said yesterday, and what we'll, we'll see this in the fiscal update today, is the government saying, okay, we're, we're ready to pay. We're going to pay. We know money is required to fix this. And they've put aside $40 billion over the next five years uh, to uh, reform the health and welfare system on our First Nations Reserve. So that's a biggie. Um, in terms of other, other new spending, there is a bill before Parliament right now that would extend some of these COVID recovery benefits to some of those sectors that I mentioned that are still struggling. Again, travel and tourism uh, are still are still trying to get off the ground. And so the government has a bill before Parliament which would which would commit to spending an extra seven billion dollars this year. Remember I mentioned we're yeah. already seventy billion in the hole over the first six months. So eh, another seven billion? Yeah, why not? I mean that's really kind of the attitude. Um but the NDP doesn't think that's enough money and it would like to see some more uh, some in, in richer benefits for those still struggling. It, it, the NDP is also fighting for some increased funding for some seniors who sort of got caught in the bureaucracy between they, they may have lost their GIS payments because they took the CERB and now they're, they don't have any CERB and they don't have their GIS, uh, at least for another year. So, uh, the NDP is pushing for that. So we'll see. There might be room for a little more spending. In effect, some of the Bay Street economists that I've been talking to, they're taking a look at this improving economy and saying, you know, the liberals are going to look at this and say, hey, 
uh, we got about an extra $10 billion windfall. What can we spend it on? Uh, do they announce that today? I suspect not. I think they'll they'll hold some of their uh, fire for the budget, for next spring's budget. That's usually one you want to announce, sort of some bigger programs. Yeah, why not keep that powder dry uh, for budget day? David Aikens uh, joining us. Now, the opposition conservatives will be uh, on this today. Um, I, I think, you know, everyone found it significant that Pierre Polyev was put back on shadow finance. Um, uh, you know, in, in essence, one-on-one coverage against Christopher Freeland. The conservatives seem to think that's a good strategy. Um, but the conservatives have obviously been pointing out inflation, rising cost of living. We got Aaron O'Toole tweeting out pictures of breakfast every couple of weeks or so. So it's a big issue for Canadians. He's trying to, you know, he's trying to be relatable like we try in our business. So the argument is, David, the federal government should be paying more attention to the problem. Is this fiscal update, does that give us a sense? Does that give answers about what the government's doing about inflation? Well, whether it does or not, you're right that the opposition is going to say, why aren't we talking more about this? Now, Yesterday, this is also something that went under the radar yesterday. Yesterday, we saw the Bank of Canada and the federal government renew its in the, the, the bank's inflation target. So what we, the bank does fiscal policy. And generally speaking, we don't want politicians interfering with what the bank does. Let it be independent. The role of the, of the elected politicians is to sit down every five years and say, okay, what, what is the bank's, you know, essentially mission? What's its objective in life? And the bank's mission is the same now as it has been for the last 30 years. It wants to try to keep inflation at around 2%. And it does that by controlling the money supply, largely through adjusting the interest rates up and down. That's the bank's job. So at yesterday, announcement, the bank is sticking with the 2% target. But we're not anywhere near 2%. We're 4 and 6% right now, depending on how you count it. And so Freeland got asked about that yesterday. Mm-hmm. And her line is this, saying, listen, during the pandemic, we were all staying indoors. We weren't going out to movies. We weren't going to get our hair cut. We weren't spending money on so-called personal services. But we were spending money. We were just spending it on stuff that could be delivered you know, to our home, hard goods. And that has made the supply chains for, you know, you name it, just gum them up. And that was inflationary. It's a global phenomenon. It's not something the government of Canada can is responsible for. No, it's not, nor is it something government of Canada can do anything about. That's the government's line. And as I mentioned, the opposition will be saying, wait a minute, if you're talking about spending another $7 billion in a, you know, recovery supports or more, that by definition is pumping money into an economy that's already very hot, that is inflationary. So that is where the argument, the political argument is going to happen. So you'll see Freeland give her speech at four, and then the first speech afterwards will be, it could be Poiliev, it could be O'Toole, whoever it is from the conservative side is going to say, listen, what are you doing about inflation? So uh, that is that is probably something we're going to have an argument about between now and the budget. David Aiken is chief political correspondent for Global News. Thanks for setting us straight on uh, what we can expect this afternoon. Always appreciate it. No problem. Have a great morning. Uh, Time to head, in essence, east and quite south uh, to South Africa. Uh, The correspondent for Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail, is down there, Jeffrey York. uh, And he joined us uh, before, really, when uh, when the Omicron news broke uh, a couple weeks ago. And we're so pleased that he's made time for us coming back. Jeffrey, thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on again uh, here in Toronto. I appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. The uh, the data is uh, we're looking at it every day and it's it's a strange one, isn't it? It's almost like a, a sports team that's that's at that 500 mark. Win one, lose one, win one, lose one. It it, it is really tough. And, and I guess the best way I can put it from our end um, is to ask you, you know, do people feel, well, we know certain things and we're still anticipating data on others? 
Yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it. Um, th there is early data uh, suggesting that um, Omicron is uh, not as uh, lethal as uh, the previous variants, but everyone is cautioning that it's still very early days. But certainly there are indications from hospitals that the uh, the need for oxygen is among fewer mm -hmm. patients. Um, the need for the ICU is um, among fewer patients than in previous variants. Can I make the case that uh, those who've sort of, you know, forecast a lot more, um, how, would, how would I put it, uh, doomy and gloomy next few weeks for us here in North America or for those in, say, you know, the UK or France, uh, it gets pointed to, well, South Africa has a very young population. That's true compared to us and maybe a fitter population compared to us. Can it be also argued um, that obviously you and I talked about it last time, the lack of uh, of a high vaccination rate might counteract any thought that uh, that, you know, there's there's devastation afoot in regard to how mild the variant may appear to be. Yeah, perhaps. And um, another factor is that even if it's mild, it can still have a huge impact, for example, on the health system. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in South Africa, we have health workers who test positive and then have to isolate. Uh, they can't be in hospitals, even if they have just mild symptoms. You know, obviously, they're, they could be contagious. So that can have an impact on, on health systems. And I think that's something that the rest of the world should be aware of, that even if people are not uh, needing to go to hospital or or at risk of death uh, or a lower risk of death, um, the, the health system can still be severely impacted because doctors and nurses have to uh, have to book off work. They have to isolate. I think you brought up something so interesting because, um, you know, if someone is, is to say among your close contacts in South Africa or I hear it here in Toronto, well, I'm really worried about Omicron when they actually stretch out the conversation they may not be worried about their own health. They may not be worried about their family's health, their kids' health. Um, if, if they don't consider themselves, if they didn't consider themselves that vulnerable to Delta, what they are worried about is just what you said, a flood of a healthcare system um, that, that really is, is strained to the max and workers are fried, burnt out. And then there's just plain capacity. So like there's, there's different definitions of being worried about Omicron. There's sort of the micro and the macro, isn't there? Yeah, and um, I think what everyone is saying, you know, I, I just listened to um, a briefing by the WHO Africa branch, and what they are constantly emphasizing is that there cannot be, there should not be complacency. Mm -hmm. The people are, are, have a tendency to say, well, this is milder than previous variants, so we shouldn't worry. Uh, but it can still have a huge impact. And so the message still is, uh, you know, wear face masks, uh, social distancing, be careful, uh, you know, look for ventilation uh, and outdoor spaces and so on. So all the messages are still the same, actually. Jeffrey, you are kind enough to join us from South Africa, from the Globe and Mail here in Toronto today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Restrictions, have there been any uh, imposed? I know you've been, you know, adamant about it. Many of the, you know, epidemiologists we've had on have said, um, have talked about the lunacy of, of the travel ban, the unfairness. There's an element of, of, you know, xenophobia that sniffs a little bit of it. But on the ground in South Africa, are people more limited from doing anything than they were three weeks ago? Well, a lot of people are not traveling because of this. Um, uh, or, or they're looking for vacations inside the country. I mean, you know, December is the traditional peak of vacations in South Africa because it's both Christmas season, but also uh, the summer season. 
And traditionally, a lot of companies book off for several weeks. Uh, so, you know, people would normally be traveling, um, but they're not, uh, or they're just looking at local trips instead. Um, and so there are restrictions that way. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the international travel bans, like my mm. countries like Canada, that is certainly having a massive impact on uh, all of Southern Africa, actually. All of these, uh, you know, eight or nine or 10 countries in Southern Africa tend to be heavily dependent on tourism. And they've just had a, a, a complete disaster because of these international travel bans. And what we're seeing now is that, you know, South Africa no longer is leading the world in Omicron cases. Yeah. It looks like the UK is taking over. Um, and yet, uh, you know, the, again, the, the WHO is, is saying that millions of Africans are having their health affected by these uh, travel bans because uh, the socioeconomic impact, uh, the impact on employment, um, even the impact on health supplies. I mean, um, uh, the scientists in South Africa who have been praised internationally for being the first to detect Omicron, now they're having trouble getting the chemicals that they need mm -hmm. for their labs to do the testing that the world depends on. So, you know, it's kind of ironic that on the one hand, the world is saying, good job, South Africa. On the other hand, here's a travel ban that's going to make your life a lot more difficult and make it more difficult for scientists to detect further variants in the future. Well, you got it. You 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 hit it right on the head. And and this is it becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it, with travel? Because then, um, you know, not from your lips or my lips, but people will then say, oh, well, people are afraid to travel because of Omicron. Well, it may be restrictions. It may be the fear of of testing positive. Um, and but we're back where where we started with uh, with, you know, <laughs> the lack of travel and things closing down being a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, uh, but to be you know to be fair, there there is some possible good news happening. We're seeing uh, reports that uh, the UK might be soon ending their uh, travel mm -hmm. bans, uh, though they might handle it a different way, which is just with better testing and you know isolation of people when they arrive. Um, and you know that's not confirmed yet. That's there's been no official announcement, but there are growing indications that the UK uh, might soon be ready to lift that travel ban. And that would be an indicator for a lot of countries. I mean, the UK was the first to impose a travel ban when Omicron was first detected. Uh, a lot of other countries, took, including Canada, mm -hmm. took their cue from the UK. And so if the UK now reverses that, you could see a lot of countries, like, including Canada, also um, uh, following the same path and lifting the travel bans. Jeffrey York from the Globe and Mail. One more quick one. Uh, population of, of fully vaccinated South Africans. Um, I looked it up last night on all, Our World and Data, which is pretty up-to-date, pretty reliable. They got it at 25.9%. Am I to read from that? I'm trying to guess it two weeks ago where we were, but there just hasn't been a massive uptick. Is this about availability, access, distrust, um, people thinking, well, now I've got natural immunity because this thing's moving fast. It, has there been a rush for South Africans to get vaccinated that weren't three weeks ago? Well, I think all of the factors you mentioned um, are factors. Um, and it's happening in many countries. Um, you know, the, the, the supply was so late to arrive and then suddenly mm -hmm. there was a flood uh, in November. And it's very difficult for systems to absorb that. Uh, you know, there would have been the same problem in Canada if uh, if vaccines had been delayed for six or seven months and then suddenly there was a massive flood of them. You just can't have everyone vaccinated at the, at the same moment. Uh, mm -hmm. It takes time. And, uh, you know, a lot of African countries, including Africa, are saying, 
why, why didn't you help us uh, at the beginning with a more predictable, steady supply of vaccines? And then we could absorb it. Then we could educate people. And over a period of time, there would, would have been greater greater pickup. You know, again, from the uh, World Health Organization's uh, Africa briefing today, they are estimating that there will be tens of thousands of deaths because of the shortage of vaccination in Africa. So think about that. That's really, uh, you know, in some ways on the conscience of uh, manufacturing companies and uh, uh, Western countries that delay the supply of vaccines to Africa. One quick question from a listener who's grateful you're on for your information. Is Delta still a fat? Has Delta been flattened in essence by Omicron in South Africa? Yes, it has been flattened by Omicron in South Africa. I mean, it is still uh, circulating in in many countries of the world. But, um, you know, it's very clear now that um, Omicron has a competitive advantage over Delta. It's Mm -hmm. more transmissible. Uh, and it very quickly outcompetes uh, Delta. Jeffrey York on the ground in South Africa. You can read him in the Globe and Mail. Follow him on Twitter at Jeffrey York. Great pleasure having you on. You, it's vital information for our listeners. It gives them great perspective. Thank you very much for the time once again. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Hope you enjoyed it. Please feel free to subscribe, share, spread the word. And we will see you tomorrow with a live show, 530 to 9 a.m. on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.